Welcome to Open Your Eyes, a podcast about opening our eyes to a new view of life. I hope you're having a great day. There's so much to enjoy and be grateful for in life. And the way we approach each day can and does affect our mood, decision-making, and courage in pursuing our purpose in life. That's why we all need a little positive perspective to get our day started right. And that's why I listen to podcasts, and I hope the reason you listen to this podcast, open your eyes. Don't ever doubt the power of setting our mind right each day. It has a big impact. So I hope today you hear something that can help you get a better view of your place in the world and how you can live to your potential. And when you're done listening today, if you find some good ideas here, be sure to share this podcast with a friend. They may just need what you find here today. Let's get started. Today, I'd like to talk about your destiny, your stone of destiny. When the king or queen of the Commonwealth of England passes away, the crown is inherited by their children, or if they had no children, by the nearest collateral line. So in the case of the monarchy today, the next in line for secession to King Charles is William, the Prince of Wales. And the next in line is not Prince Harry, Duke of Sussex, but rather William's three children, Prince George, Princess Charlotte, and Prince Louis. Through its history, the throne and who would ascend to the throne has been the subject of stories, operas, plays, and public comment. In April 1926, Elizabeth was born as the first child of Prince Albert, Duke of York, and his wife Elizabeth, Duchess of York. Albert was not the first in line for the throne because he was the second son of King George V and Queen Mary. During her grandfather's reign, Elizabeth was third in secession behind her uncle Edward and her father. And when Elizabeth was growing up, she never expected to become queen because Edward had still not married, and he was expected to do so and have children of his own. And they would precede her father in secession. It was never supposed to be her destiny. In 1936, her grandfather, King George, died, and her uncle seceded to the throne as Edward VIII. However, as is often the case, love stepped in the way of destiny. Years before his father's death, Edward had started dating and fallen in love with Wallace Simpson, an American socialite who was divorced from her first husband and in the process of divorcing her second. And with his appointment to king and as the British monarch, Edward was the religious, political, and moral head of the Church of England, which didn't allow divorced people to remarry in the church. And at first, many people believed that Edward wouldn't marry Simpson, and it was thought that Simpson was driven by love of money or position rather than the love of the king. Well, despite the opinions of people, Edward declared that he loved Simpson and intended to marry her as soon as her second divorce was finalized. Well, after this declaration, the prime minister invited him to Buckingham Palace and told him that such a marriage would not be acceptable to the people. The Bishop of Bradford would later add his voice of the same opinion. But Edward wanted to remain king and wanted to take his case to the people. But he was told on constitutional grounds he could not keep the throne and marry Simpson. So on December 10th of the same year in which he ascended to it, Edward abdicated the throne. And Elizabeth's father, the brother to Edward, became King George VI. 
And it is King George whose story is featured in the Oscar-winning film The King's Speech and who would be a source of incredible morale and courage during World War II. It was as if destiny stepped in and put George, who was a war veteran himself, at the throne instead of Edward, just as World War II was beginning. But the war took its toll on George, and just after the war ended, he failed to recover from a lung operation and died in his sleep in 1952 at the age of 56. It was a shock to the Commonwealth. And in the midst of their grieving, the people turned to his successor, who would be his firstborn, and that was Elizabeth. Elizabeth was only 25 years old, and she would become queen of seven independent nations, the UK, Canada, Australia, New Zealand, South Africa, Pakistan, and Sri Lanka. Was it destiny for her to be queen? She was young. She had married Prince Philip of Greece and Denmark and had given birth to her son Charles. And she was so young and seemed so unprepared to become queen, but history would demonstrate that her talent, her destiny, was to be queen. The coronation ceremony followed the same pattern as the coronations of kings and queens before her. It was held at Westminster Abbey. 27 million people across Britain watched the event on live TV, something that had never happened before. It was the first time cameras were allowed inside the Abbey. The film would be recorded and flown on a Royal Canadian Air Force jet immediately to Canada to be broadcast throughout Canada and the United States. Well, the coronation procession traveled 4.5 miles through London. There were 8,000 guests invited to the coronation. And once the procession arrived at Westminster at 11 a.m., Elizabeth exited her carriage. When she started walking down the aisle at the Abbey, she immediately realized that there was extreme friction between her robes and the carpet. She could hardly walk forward. So she said to the Archbishop of Canterbury, get me started, and he helped her along to start walking. As she passed the great lords of England, she was introduced to each one, and in reply, each would say, God save the Queen. Elizabeth was then seated on the chair of the estate. This is the throne of England and she would later be coronated and return to the same chair. This chair is known as King Edward's chair and was built in the year 1296 by King Edward, and it was built specifically to hold the Stone of Destiny. The Stone of Destiny is an oblong block of red sandstone. Edward seized the stone, which was called the Stone of Scone, from the Scots who used it in their coronations, and it was formerly housed at the Monastery of Scone. At the time, one belief was that the stone was brought from Ireland, which is known as the Island of Destiny. The other belief was the stone was Jacob's stone. In the Bible, in the book of Genesis, the prophet Jacob was fleeing from his elder brother Esau because Jacob had tricked his brother out of his birthright. As a result, his father Isaac's blessing had been given to Jacob. But Jacob, fleeing from his brother and his home, was now on his own and didn't know what his destiny really was. He came to a place called Bethel and laid down to rest for the night. When he lay down to sleep, he rested his head upon a stone. And during the night, he dreamed a dream in which God told him that it was his destiny to live in Bethel and his children would flood the earth. He soon was given a new name. His new name, Israel. His sons became the 12 tribes of Israel 
and the place where the stone lay, Jacob would call the gate of heaven. So this stone became the stone of destiny. From a place of destiny and anointed by a prophet whose future was destined to change much of history. And whether the Scots had the actual stone of Jacob or not, it was this belief and story that makes the foundation of the throne where Elizabeth sat and where her son Charles recently sat so powerful. Now, it's not likely that any of us will ever sit on a chair of the estate of England or hold in our hands or rest our head on a stone of destiny. But it doesn't mean that destiny doesn't play a role in our lives and that we can't have as our foundation belief, hope, and destiny. It does mean, I believe, that we have a purpose, that God has given us a destiny to follow, and we have figuratively a stone, a foundation of destiny. Why do I believe this? Well, as one author put it, how else could one person be so fascinated by the accuracy of numbers while another is totally obsessed with the beauty of words? What allows you to have great interest in something that bores other people to tears? Why are you about to devote countless hours to reading a book while other people will never know the storyline if it's not on video? One could argue the answer to that question is instinct. And what is instinct, if not even in small ways, destiny? If you look closely, instinct is present in all of the world's creations. Instinct refers to an innate, natural, and automatic behavior or response in humans and animals. It guides behavior without the need for conscious thought or reasoning. Some instincts are present at birth. If you've been present at the birth of a baby, you know not long after birth, their instinct to suck gives them a way to survive. Another instinct is called the rooting reflex. It means that when a baby's cheek is touched or stroked, they instinctively turn their head in that direction and open their mouth. This helps them locate food. Babies have a grasping instinct and an instinctual way to communicate, crying. And some instincts in the animal kingdom are even more incredible. Many birds have an instinctual ability to navigate vast distances during migration. They return to the same place every year, even if it's thousands of miles away. Hibernation, echolocation, nest building, and more are not taught or learned, but rather given through instinct. And if animals have these incredible instincts given to them, what do you and I have? In addition to those instincts we possessed as a baby. Because I believe we have a number of amazing instincts and some, if not all, will lead us to our destiny. One of the most rewarding things in life is following those instincts and trusting that the final results of your life's journey may be in the hands of someone and something bigger than yourself. And when you do see that you have instincts and talents inside you, you can take as the foundation of where you sit in life your destiny. Almost everyone is familiar with Oprah Winfrey's story, a black girl raised by her grandmother in the 1950s in rural Mississippi. As a young girl, she was traumatized by sexual abuse. She grew up incredibly poor, and her childhood was unstable and unfair. With a revolving series of caregivers, the only consistent thing about her environment was 
that she was constantly uprooted to go and live with someone else. Passed from her grandmother to her mother, then her father and back again, Oprah could scarcely have had a worse childhood. So you might ask yourself, with everything that was so unfair about her childhood, how did she become who she became? How did she rise to such prominence and success? Well, I believe it was in part instinct, talent, and following that talent to what she felt she was meant to do. You see, by the age of three, she had already been taught to read and at a young age read the Bible a lot. And her grandmother also took her to church regularly. There, she was nicknamed the preacher because she could recite Bible verses and could speak with great skill to groups of people. One author wrote of her, little by little, unconsciously at first, Oprah was picking up the very skills that would allow her to captivate audiences decades later. In time, her grandmother and later her father would take her to speak in front of crowds at every church within driving distance. Congregations clamored to hear this wonder child who spoke like a leader. Oprah said, from the time I was eight years old, I was a champion speaker. I spoke for every women's group, every banquet, every church function. Her father took her to the library regularly, and she found a love for learning. Reading, sermons, speaking, Bible learning, faith, prayer, and sharing her testimony are experiences that most children never get. So at age 17, Oprah won the Miss Black Tennessee Beauty Pageant and was offered an on-air job at WVOL, a radio station serving the African-American community in Nashville. She also won a full scholarship to Tennessee State University where she majored in speech communications and performing arts. She continued to work at WVOL in her first years of college, but soon left school and signed on with a local television station as a reporter and anchor. As her biography says, in 1976, she moved to Baltimore to join WGZ-TV as co-anchor. There, she co-hosted her first talk show, People Are Talking. She had found a niche that perfectly suited her outgoing, empathetic personality, and word soon spread to other cities. In January of 1984, she was invited to Chicago to host a faltering half-hour morning program. In less than a year, she turned AM Chicago into the hottest show in town. The format was soon expanded to an hour, and in September of 1985, it was renamed The Oprah Winfrey Show. Here's the point. Perhaps like Oprah or Jacob or any other person who's let their talent impact the world around them, you too have an instinct, a gift, a destiny to follow. It may not lead to your own show on television, but it can lead to finding and being a better you. And I've worked with too many people and seen too much of this life to ignore the fact that we all have a gift. The scripture says that to each of us is given a gift of the Spirit, a gift from God. And it teaches us that these gifts are diverse and given to us for our benefit and suited to our needs. I have five children, and each of these wonderful kids have different gifts. And if you're a parent, you know what I'm talking about. So if that is true of your kids, then of course it is true of you. But 
As we live and breathe and work and even worry, sometimes we forget our destiny, our gifts. And part of what can lead to our happiness is remembering and leaning in to those gifts. T.D. Jakes argues that your instincts are the treasure map of your soul's satisfaction and that seeking, although not clear at first where your treasure might be, is a quest that teaches us most about who we really are. When we follow our instincts, we unlock our most productive, satisfying lives. So if all of this is true, then how do you do that? How do you follow your instincts or destiny when you're not quite sure of what they really are? First, gain all the insight that you can. The definition of the word insight is the capacity to gain an accurate and deep intuitive understanding of a person or thing. And to be a person who has intuitive understanding requires we do a few things. And the first is seek different perspectives. You see, some of us are living in the same environment most of our life. And as a result, we rarely get new perspectives. This podcast is about that, about opening your eyes, finding new perspectives. And this requires we try new things, meet people different from ourselves, try new ways of living and being a bit curious about life and people. And maybe you think this sounds too time-consuming or weird or troublesome, but it's really not. This week, what could you do to get outside of your view and seek a new perspective? Well, I believe that these things are often right in front of us. I believe that God put destiny-led things in our path but we often don't pursue them. Like wrapped gifts falling out of heaven, we can choose to stop and open them if we want, but we often don't because we're so distracted by life or haven't developed our curiosity muscles or we're living out of routine, which keeps our insight diminished. Years ago, my neighbor, Ron McMillan, and four others teamed up to write a number of best-selling books, including Crucial Conversations and Influencer. One of his fellow authors is a wonderful man named Joseph Grenny. You've likely heard of him. He founded an organization called The Other Side Academy. Here is the story the Academy tells of its founding. In January 2014, Joseph got an unexpected letter from an inmate named Zach at the county jail. Weeks earlier, Zach had been arrested with a car full of drugs and guns. He had spent 12 of the previous 16 years of his life incarcerated. He had fathered a child he had no relationship with, he had no real friends, and he was alienated from his parents. Somehow, while in jail, Zach found a copy of the book Influencer written by Joseph. Zach read it. Inside, he learned about Delancey Street, a program in San Francisco that helps released convicts. And as a long shot, he contacted Joseph. He said in his letter that after he finished his 15-year sentence, his only hope for a different future would be something like Delancey Street. He wrote to ask if, when he was released, Joseph would introduce him to Delancey Street. I know I can't do this on my own, he wrote. I think it may be what I need. You see, years earlier, in writing his book Influencer, Joseph had visited Delancey Street and met the founder, Mimi. Mimi's organization so impressed Joseph that he wrote about it in the book. The organization receives no government funding. The released convicts living there live in a housing complex that they built, 
and they have assisted 20,000 people to transform their lives as a result. But that night, as Joseph and his wife considered Zach's request, they decided to not only help Zach get into Delancey Street, but felt an instinct to create something in their home state of Utah to help more than just Zach, to help hundreds of Zachs. Today, the Other Side Academy is thriving. It operates various social enterprises, such as a moving company, a thrift store, a food truck, and other things, which serve as training grounds for parolees to learn practical skills and develop a strong work ethic. The revenue generated from these enterprises helps sustain the program and provides financial support to the participants. The success of the Other Side Academy is evident in the stories of individuals who have successfully turned their lives around through the program. But here's the thing. Joseph followed his instinct to initially visit Delancey, and he included that experience in his book. Zach read the book and followed his instinct to write to Joseph asking for his help. Joseph and his wife followed their instinct to start the academy, and dozens of other gifts and insights have come over the years to bring it to what it is today. Do you call it destiny? I do. This illustrates the power of being willing to seek other perspectives and live outside of your own way of thinking and being. Next, if you will really embrace that you have a destiny and the concept that life is a treasure map and you're on the hunt for your destiny, just like a treasure hunter hunts for a treasure, you will take a gamble, listen more, and see the potential miracle in things that come your way. And if you can embrace this treasure-seeking concept, the benefactors may be your children or your team because your faith-filled way of thinking and living just might rub off on them and think about how fulfilling life would be with this perspective and experience. Because when you feel inspired to follow a certain course, you follow with more effort, passion, and stick-to-itiveness. It's what gives you strength to persevere. Now, many of you listening to this podcast today are attempting to build a business of your own. And I suspect in many cases, you're like a treasure hunter, following the partially clear but not perfectly clear map to reach your goals, still discovering the right business partners and uncovering the best path to success. And when you feel that this is your destiny, that you're following your instincts, you build, you work, you persevere, better. Next, I don't think you have to look too far to begin the serendipitous path of pursuing your destiny. In fact, I'd bet there are already opportunities in your life that perhaps you haven't fully pursued. For example, I've had the impression for years to learn and become proficient in Spanish. It's been a nagging instinct for a long time. Recently, I ran into an opportunity to begin that pursuit. I'm not sure what the outcome will be. Will I meet people, open doors, or find my destiny? Who knows? But nosotros veremos que pasa. So what about you? What's something in your life is calling you? What person needs help or place could you volunteer or books should you read? Your instinct will tell you. You know, Katherine Johnson was born in 1918 in White Sulphur Springs, West Virginia. She grew up as a minority, but she found that she had a gift. She had this intense curiosity and brilliance with numbers. 
she became a teacher, and she thought perhaps that teaching was her destiny. However, soon after, she was selected to be one of three black students to integrate West Virginia State University's graduate school. Sensing this as an opportunity rather than a challenge, she enrolled in the graduate math program. At the end of the first semester, however, she decided to leave school to start a family with her husband. Thirteen years later, as her three daughters got older, a relative told her about an open position at the all-black West Area Computing Section at NASA. Catherine wasn't sure what to do, but again, she saw it as an opportunity and started to work there. She spent the next four years analyzing data from flight tests. As she was wrapping up this work, her husband died of cancer in 1956. In 1962, as NASA prepared for the first mission of a spacecraft in orbit, her work had become so reliable that John Glenn specifically asked for her to calculate by hand the calculations made by the computer. If she says they're good, Glenn said, then I'm ready to go. And Glenn's flight was a success, and this was a pivotal flight and beginning for NASA. One of Catherine's most notable contributions came during the Apollo 11 mission, which successfully landed the first humans on the moon. Her calculations were pivotal in ensuring the spacecraft's safe return to the Earth. Catherine's achievements were often overlooked until the release of the movie Hidden Figures in 2016, which brought her story and the contributions of other African-American female mathematicians to the forefront. Catherine received numerous honors, including the Presidential Medal of Freedom. She is an inspiration to many people who saw in her story the possibility of pursuing their destiny and breaking down barriers in their own fields. All of this came about because she decided to pursue an opportunity that came her way when a relative told her about the job. Next, the foundation stone of your destiny sits on your faith. In fact, I believe destiny is spelled F-A-I-T-H. Faith is a gift. And if you look at anyone who has pursued their destiny, somewhere along the way, they had to act with faith. Everything wasn't known. The road wasn't perfectly clear. And at some point, they had to trust themselves and God. On May 23, 1940, the British Prime Minister Winston Churchill went to visit Elizabeth's father, King George VI, who had become king, as we just heard, when his brother Albert relinquished the throne. Churchill was discouraged beyond belief. Churchill met with the king to brief him on the war. British and Allied troops were trapped by the Germans in Europe. The Germans had flooded through their defenses, and it looked like they would wipe out the entire army. Though a naval rescue operation was underway, pitifully few ships were ready to sail, and the logistics of defending against the inevitable German air attack while ferrying troops across the ocean seemed impossible. Allied soldiers were scrambling to reach the port of Dunkirk. They barely knew which direction to go. Well, after giving his report, Churchill expected concern from the king, but instead he heard something else. We must pray, King George said. This Sunday, I'm calling for a national day of prayer. Well, famously non-religious, Churchill was surely not looking at prayer as the answer. But he could hardly refuse the king, 
And on May 24th, the king addressed the nation. Let us, with one heart and soul, humbly but confidently commit our cause to God and ask his aid that we may valiantly defend the right as it is given to us to see it. Well, across Great Britain, tens of thousands of people responded to the king's call, uniting as never before. Cathedrals and churches, mosques and synagogues were packed to overflowing. At Westminster Cathedral, the line extended for blocks as hundreds kept vigil outside. The people didn't know exactly why they were praying, yet they prayed. Nothing like this has ever happened before is how one English newspaper described the scene. The following day, though, the German high command reported the British army is encircled and our troops are proceeding to its annihilation. The war, it appeared, was over for the Allies. The Allied soldiers were instructed to get back to Dunkirk. Most soldiers probably never had heard of Dunkirk. Everywhere, the roads were filled with British and French soldiers. Abandoned tanks and equipment littered the countryside. Thousands of refugees marched with escaping troops, some driving cars, everyone fleeing in advance of the Germans. From out of the skies would come the German fighters, strafing everything in sight. The scene was horrific. Then something happened that historians, even 77 years, can't explain. With German tanks rumbling just 10 miles from Dunkirk, Hitler did the unthinkable. On May 24th, the day King George called the nation to pray, Hitler inexplicably halted the offensive. For nearly three days, as England knelt as one, those tanks remained grounded. Nothing moved. It was the exact window of time the British needed to form a defensive perimeter to temporarily fight back the Germans and establish a funnel for their troops to flow through to the English Channel. Then came something else, rain and clouds. German planes bombed Dunkirk on three separate days, but each time for days afterward, the city was enveloped by rain clouds and the breeze moved smoke into the air, preventing the German fighters from flying. Meanwhile, word was spreading across England of the need for boats to cross the channel. And the spirit, awakened by the National Day of Prayer, brought out rowboats, fishing trawlers, tugs, and motorboats. Hundreds of would-be skippers responded. Something else. The English Channel is notoriously rough and choppy. No place for beginners. But once again, something peculiar happened. During the rescue, the waters remained calm. In total, 338,000 soldiers were evacuated all because the king, who wasn't supposed to be king, embraced his destiny and called for a day of prayer. Now, you could easily conclude that if King George had not been king, that Dunkirk may not likely have happened and the war itself may have been lost. Who says the stone of destiny doesn't work? It works, and it can and will work for you and me. Embrace the fact that you have an instinct for a reason. And that reason is that you're meant to become more like your maker and rise to fulfill the part you play in this amazing experience we call life. So as we end today, remember that you have opportunities all around you to be curious, to listen, to follow your instincts. And as you do, do so with faith. And you will find 
that you can play your destined role in improving your life and the life of your family and team. Like a treasure map, accept the challenge to find your purpose, seek it, and as you do, a greater sense of self and adventure will enter your life. And at night, when you lie your head down to sleep, anchor your thoughts in your life's destiny and watch. You will rise to be who you are meant to be. Most of all, thanks for being here today. And don't forget to share this podcast with a friend and join us next week for another podcast as we learn to open our eyes to who and what we can become. 